Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and this week, Steve and I are speaking with April Rudin, the founder and president of marketing consultancy, The Rudin Group. April has a really interesting perspective, and she focuses on the intersection of fintech, wealth, and next-gen clients, which is really quite fascinating. We talked to April about the trends that are impacting how you need to market to high-net-worth clients, and we do a deep dive on high-net-worth boomers and millennials. April brings a really interesting perspective on how you can build referral relationships with centers of influence, how to build trust, and how to ensure that the fit is exactly right. And with that, let's get right to the conversation with April. April, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here today. Yeah, welcome, April. Oh, thanks. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for having me today. Oh, we're, we're excited. Hey, just, I've got so many questions for you, but I, I thought it probably makes sense to just start with a little bit about the company and the work that you do. Just give us a little context for the conversation. Sure. So um, last month marked my 10th anniversary in business. Um, I had the idea of taking a look at wealth, next gen and technology and the convergence of all of those areas. I looked around at financial services marketing and particularly wealth marketing and was really underwhelmed. Uh, There was largely undifferentiated website cliches. We put clients interest first stock photos. And so 10 years ago, I set out about changing that. So uh, we offer full service marketing from uh, branding and messaging architecture, content creation, uh, digital social strategy and PR. So uh, and only financial services marketing, particularly wealth and wealth management. So working with advisors every single day. So it's interesting because you're talking about I mean, I think you said wealth and next gen and technology, which often we would need to have three separate conversations to cover all those topics typically. But you're, it sounds like you're talking about how they come together. Is that, is that, am I getting that right? And and the impact that that would have, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, So that's something I feel very passionately about. I mean, the idea is that, um, 10 years ago, it was obvious to me that there was a wealth transfer, and I think probably everyone read about it, but uh, either underestimated it or didn't think about it. Uh, Next geners, as the mother of two millennials, I could see that they were making decisions and behaving differently uh, than uh, previous generations with certain um, decisions. And then technology, having been in technology uh, most of my life, I could see how that was really changing so many different businesses and that the sort of the last bastion was wealth and wealth management. So um, my idea was, and uh, I think we can see it more, much more clearly today than 10 years ago, that uh, wealth management services were going to be disrupted. How they were bought and how they were sold would be really changing. And so when you were coming in, you didn't see those, those discussions happening. So we would talk about, how technology is going to make us more efficient, for example. And we talk about how do we market to older people. But uh, but obviously you saw some opportunity that perhaps some advisors weren't seeing at that time. Is that fair? 
Yes, absolutely. So I think it's the whole idea of differentiation and uh, really planners having a plan, uh, a marketing plan and thinking about their businesses. So I think that uh, when I first started my business 10 years ago, um, most advisors were pretty much satisfied with their book of business. If you ask them, people would think that they had enough clients uh, to sort of last. They were busy enough. They made enough money. Uh, although, you know, certainly that's a generalization, but I think today people realize that baby boomers are drawing down on their assets. Millennials and others who are entrepreneurs are creating new wealth. Um, there are sort of niches out there with women and diversity and so many different things that can create opportunities for advisors to really uh, bring on more clients and have more satisfied clients for longer periods of time. And, and so what are some of the, the, the main differences uh, in marketing the baby boomer traditional audience that the advisors have gone to and marketing uh, toward those younger high net worth clients? So uh, I think that the, the main difference um, comes into play is the impact sort of that millennials have had. So I'm a proponent of segmented marketing, but not to the point where you over segment. So uh, what I don't think really works is marketing that's so targeted, Steve, that, you know, uh, you, you almost call it, you know, here's our offering for millennials uh, versus here's our offering for boomers, because that gets to the point of really isolating it and re being ridiculous. So uh, I, I am a fan, however, for sort of a, a one-size-doesn't-fit-all marketing, meaning that uh, advisors who offer uh, more than one uh, entry point are really more successful. So and that's a roundabout way of saying that uh, uh, millennials have probably driven, uh, to a large extent, um, people moving away from uh, opaque investments, uh, undifferentiated marketing, cliches, uh, lack of personalization, and have driven uh, that sort of trend. So I think that has been the driver. And the more open and transparent uh, with fees, with benefits, uh, and the way moving away from cliches and stock photos and things that are undifferentiated, uh, the more successful advisors can be. I've heard a lot of people comment just recently on the fact that boomers have been a bit lost in, in market that, you know, we've had this conversation of focusing on millennials, which is important, but, but there's still this middle group that, that we might need to focus on. Do, do you think that's true? Is that what you see? Absolutely. So, um, I wouldn't exclude any group, um, uh, you know, including one doesn't mean that you have to exclude others. So right. uh, I think that's the idea of having uh, multiple entry points and multiple offerings that allow people, whoever they are, to uh, access your um, services. So uh, yes, Gen X uh, is often called the forgotten generation. Um, you know, there certainly are high earners and have um, assets. Uh, in the aggregate, right? Sometimes more than millennials, although we can't, you know, people are sometimes um, quick to dismiss millennials, but they are the most entrepreneurial group that we've ever had in any generation. So even though they have the highest debt, they also have the highest earning potential, and you can hold on to those clients for a long time. 
you know, pre-retirement, of course, is probably the group that many advisors uh, focus in on without calling them that. But um, uh, I just want to caution that uh, even though I think in sometimes in segments, I think you don't want to market explicitly in segments. Uh, you know, in other words, if you're an advisor focusing in on women, uh, you know, it's not wise to have a pink website, right, with uh, flowers <laughs> on it. So um, those are some of the mistakes that people make by over-segmenting an offering. And can I just ask you to clarify, you're using the term multiple entry points. Do you mean entry points in the life of the client or do you mean something, have I picked that up correctly? Um, so what I mean by that is really in terms of your messaging. So um, website copy, uh, elevator pitch, uh, social media, um, brochures, one pager, events, whatever types of marketing advisors are doing, they should be offering multiple entry points, meaning that they have, uh, you know, a lot of different um, ways that they can engage with clients. So if somebody is at a different life stage, they can still be a client. They're not excluded. So you can offer different uh, entry points. So, uh, you know, maybe you're specializing in uh, pre-retirement planning, but it doesn't mean that it's to the exclusion of, uh, boomers or to the exclusion of millennials. So uh, I like to see messaging that's really inclusive that talks more about uh, how advisors solve problems rather than who they're trying to attract. So help me understand this a little bit. Um, the um, You're talking about uh, having differentiators, having you know some specialties or some special things to offer specific markets, but not necessarily tailoring your message to that market because it you, you think that it would make them over-specialized? Am I getting that right? And, and if that's the case, how do you balance those two? So that's a great question. I think that's really the balance that advisors need to strike. In other words, you don't want to have an offering that says something like, hey, millennials, come over here. We understand you. Hey, women, we understand you. But it's through language and messaging and the offerings, uh, sometimes the images and um, the pitch that you really attract the kind of clients that are best suited for you. So uh, that's why I always encourage advisors to think about their value props, think about what it is that they offer. And by putting out something that's really authentic to them, they will naturally uh, attract the kinds of clients that are probably a better fit for them um, personally, and then a better fit for them professionally as well. I find that it's, it can be stilted, right? People are thinking, oh, you know, uh, women, what a great market. And they put up a pink website and think about hiring a female advisor and uh, making all sorts of overt um, type uh, activities. And that doesn't necessarily attract women. Uh, in fact, it might turn some women off, right? Well, yeah, so so let's get beyond that superficial stuff that's obviously insulting, like having a, a pink website. But, you know, they, I mean, there are advisors out there who do, who, who've said women are different in certain ways. Um, and we have tailored our process so that, you know, our so that for women, it, it seems to work better. And, and they have their, they are very explicit about their messaging. You're, you're saying that's kind of a bad idea. Well, I think that it might be... Um uh, attractive to some women, but for other women, they don't want to be targeted in such an explicit way, right? Uh, we all know that men and women are different, but also all women are not the same. So segmenting all women as a practice group might or might not work. Uh, some women and some men could be, uh, you know, more uh, 
uh, similar than, you know, thinking about all women as being the same. I mean, think about the women in your life, Steve, including Julie uh, and your wife. Is everyone the same? I hope not. Because that well, would no, mean I was married to no, Steve, yeah, and it would be weird. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. I, and my wife gets so rattled when I wake up and say, good morning, Julie. Um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, no, and, and, I, and I, get you, I, I get your point that, you know, a, a, a sex is not, is not a target market because it is too broad. But I'm, yeah. I'm thinking back to Evelyn Zolan, who was one of our prior guests. And one of the more, more powerful things I think she said and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm looking for clarification. And and she's very specific about women in transition and three specific transitions that she specializes in. And it puts her in a position of being able to go to centers of influence, for example, and saying, "Listen, we don't want all your clients, but if you've got a woman who's in this situation, we're your firm." And I think that's it's a hugely powerful statement, and it's also generated some really good. Uh, business results for her. So I'm trying to figure out when when we're when an advisor is looking on what message do they want to send out? How do how do they achieve the kind of balance that that you're that you're advocating um, in having a, a somewhat customized process, but but not excluding other people? So I think in the example you gave, one of the things that works really well is the idea and you know um, becoming referable and going to a center of influence. I think uh, one of the things that advisors sometimes do poorly is go to center of influence or people who can refer them clients and simply ask for clients without being explicit at that inflection point, what types of clients are a good fit for their practice. Uh, Certainly people have like the right skill set, right, to be able to service different segments. And I think that's great. And they should focus in on those. And I think it's especially important, you know, in the example that you gave of being able to communicate that to center of influence, um, because you need you know, a specific skill set for certain segments like the one that you mentioned. So I think that's where it works really, really well. Uh, and, you know, people can have more than one website or more than one uh, sell sheet and um, market, you know, to uh, many different audiences, right, and see, right. Uh, I think that's what really works best. Um, and, you know, particularly with high net worth, you know, people, advisors will come to me and say, you know, I want to be a family officer. I want to work with high net worth clients without having the skills and experience. So it's aspirational for them, but they don't really have, uh, anything to back them up. So that's quite a different situation. I'd love to dig into the center of influence um, area a little because, I mean, that's it's such an important part of referrals, obviously, and we often focus so much on client referrals. And yet, you know, certainly I see huge opportunity. Equally, I see a lot of advisors saying, uh, I'm, I'm challenged in this area. I find it hard to be successful in this area. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the role you see centers of influence playing with high net worth clients and maybe what you're seeing as being really effective in nurturing those relationships. Sure. So I would say this is one of my uh, also uh, favorite areas or passions really in helping advisors and something I think is is really important in getting it right. So, uh, you know, to your point, we all know it's a relationship business and referrals are important, but centers of influence can be referrals of multiples rather than end clients, even referring one or two clients, perhaps over their lifetime. Uh, The other thing about understanding centers of influence is um, they um, 
finding a referral or having some referred can be opportunistic. So you might meet a person, but they're not in the market for an advisor. Um, but a center of influence, uh, a CPA, an attorney, uh, or someone like that, insurance agent, can be understanding someone's life cycle and knowing more about why they might need to add an advisor. Uh, they were also a trained financial services professional. So they're better at assessing uh, who could be potentially a good referral um, for a particular practice also. Um, so for all of those reasons, the multiples, the understanding of the business, the timing aspect, um, and then high net worth, as you asked about, um, understanding more about what the needs are of the client in a, in a broad brush and being able to communicate that all make center of influence marketing to me one of the most effective tools that advisors can have and should be on everyone's list for 2019. Um, not to the extent, again, that you're not marketing or being visible to end investors, obviously, but um, in terms of your spend and time and energy and money. I think that um, smart advisors are taking a look at how to attract um, and become more visible in a B2B rather than a B2C marketing. And what, what, would your, what, what, would you, what would you suggest be uh, maybe some of the top couple things on that to-do list when it comes to developing that COI aspect of the marketing plan? So I think... Um, uh, having a COI marketing plan is is just that. It's number one, having a plan. So having regular activities, uh, that could be events, webinars, um, conversations, a newsletter, uh, a podcast like, such as this one, something that is... Um, is designed to create some stickiness and good relationships with centers of influence and be in front of them all the time is is really the key because they're the ones juggling all their different clients. And so uh, out of sight, out of mind, but uh, insight in mind. So having regular activities and planners really having a specific plan more than just sort of tipping the hat and acknowledging centers of influence can be good referrers, uh, having actual activities and um, even developing marketing materials developed as such. One of the things I've, I've wondered about is as I've chatted with advisors who say they're struggling with this particular strategy is, do we too often see it as, uh, you know, I'm out there pitching centers of influence on working with me. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter, you know, if they're right for my business or if our clients are the same, but I feel like I'm, I'm pitching and it's going nowhere. Whereas, you know, it strikes me that you need to choose your centers of influence in the same way you choose your clients. I mean, who's, who's right for you? Do you interview them? It's a, it's a partnership. Um, any, any thoughts on making sure you've got the right centers of influence? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Julie. So, um, you know, Having everything line up in, in your practice and in your referrals uh, is super key. So understanding, uh, you know, going to meet with people or spending your time, and it shouldn't be so much of a, a pitch. Let me just talk about that for a minute. I think, you know, if you are finding that you need to, quote unquote, sell yourself or pitch yourself too much to a center of influence, I don't think that they're going to be a good source of referrals. However, I think it's developing the relationships uh, with people who are a good fit. So uh, even asking clients who they work with uh, and meeting people that way might be a better way to find a better fit, to your point, uh, rather than just sort of cold calling uh, who might have the largest 
I don't know, trust and estates practice in, in my city and then trying to meet with them. Uh, if there is no um, lineup between the advisor and the practice that they're trying to um, link themselves to, then it's just not going to work and they won't get referrals. Because I often wonder if if we start from the place of center of influence strategy actually being a client engagement strategy, you know, when you think about it, it's building a network of people around you who can support your clients, but then choosing the right people who will also provide referrals, It then it is less about a pitch. And I, and I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a pitch. It's, yeah. it's something that you mm-hmm. want to do for your clients. Exactly. It shouldn't be a pitch. And, you know, I think that, uh, that exact framing. It is an an engagement process and an ongoing engagement process. And that's why I suggest even creating a plan for that. So I've worked with advisors that have uh, created a newsletter, for example, that can curate content from uh, attorneys of all different sorts and CPAs on new tax laws. So you're you have, uh, you know, really sort of high-level content that you're putting out. And all of that is just going in your B2B network rather than your B2C network. Um, you can stage events or host dinners, all sorts of uh, type ways of engagement that uh, people know about. But just having it be in the B2B area rather than the B2C area uh, creates some camaraderie, engagement, to your point, uh, community, and encourages and nurtures leads that can be multiples uh, rather than the singles. And I think that's what makes it such an important activity. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you think um, gets in the way for, for advisor? I mean, if if they were to to think tomorrow, I, I really want to get this right. I want to identify a few key centers of influence and get it right. You know, what's the, st- the start doing and stop doing, uh, perhaps, in this area? I think the start doing would be to start with their most satisfied clients and get some names of professionals that they're working with. Um, I think that can be a great start uh, because if they have a good relationship with that client, chances are that the um, – other centers of influence, other people that they're working with could be a good source. Uh, I think LinkedIn can be a good source also, but you need to uh, be use it gingerly and make sure that you are linking and connecting with people where you can really truly um, add value. So that could be sort of a star, start and stop uh, activity there. Um, again, you know, just thinking about it, it's not in, in center of influence marketing and in high net worth, it's not really the quantity of people, but really comes down to the quality of people that you're working with. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. It, um, go ahead, Julie. I'm sorry. No, no, I've been Is, absolutely I, I monopolizing. To, <laughs> no, that's I, I wanted to. I, uh, I wanted to jump back to the to the different markets if if we could. Sure. Because um, I, I I think there's still some important stuff to cover there. It was, so you know we've talked about um, marketing more specifically toward the Gen Xers and the and the Millennials. And um, do you think that the the differences in 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 how you communicate with and how you attract those folks is informed mostly by their their wealth or their age or something else or you know what uh, what goes into uh, effectively 
reaching out to those folks more effectively, those other generations besides the boomers more effectively? So uh, that's a great question. And I guess if, if we knew the exact secret sauce and the silver bullet, uh, you know, we wouldn't need to become more referable, right? Everybody would, <laughs> everyone would know the answer to that. So I think, you know, it's some kind of mix of language, images, your positioning, um, you know, that really make you attractive to um, certain segments. I'll say that. Uh, it's not as if one advisor is going to be, um, you know, the boomer, let's say, um, advisor, right? Or, or one person, you know, millennials may not choose to work with millennials. I know for my own kids, uh, you know, um, I sent them to financial advisor when they graduated college. And, uh, you know, my own millennial son said, uh, you know, I don't know why this advisor is sending me to a robo advisor because I don't know anything about investing and I don't want to work with anybody who just graduated college like I did, right? I want someone who will teach me. So I think that there's a, you need to use a little bit of um, uh, smarts when it comes to putting together your messaging and uh, seeing what works. Um, I think that you want to be as transparent as possible. I think that will attract more people. I think that you want to talk a little bit about your professional life and balance too with your personal life. I think that will end up getting you clients that are a better fit right, for you and for your practice. So people who talk about travel or uh, passions, right, or causes or things that, you know, are important to them will end up attracting more like-minded people rather than, and, and those could be in a segment or it could be across segments. And so you're, early on, you mentioned that I think in, in reference to millennials in particular, that they're making decisions differently. Um, and you just mentioned purpose. And we, you know, we hear a lot about the need uh, to, to ensure that you reflect, uh, have some purpose in, in order to attract these, these folks. Is there mm -hmm. anything else about the decision making that you're seeing that you think we, we really need to understand if we're going to market effectively uh, going forward? Uh, another great question. So millennials tend to trust their peers more than they trust sort of suits. Um, they know what's, you know, they know their parents may have been burned in 2008. Uh, they have some distrust for sort of the institution or the establishment. So they may be uh, asking their friends for uh, referrals or asking their friends to weigh in on uh, some of their money-making decisions uh, much more than uh, other generations would, where other people would not trust their friends but would, you know, strictly go to professionals. I think that you can also trust on millennials, but, you know, not exclusively millennials, of course. A lot of us uh, uh, older people are very digital, right? They're going to go to the Internet. They're going to research. So, uh, you know, it used to be in the olden days, if I was coming up to Toronto, I might uh, – ask you, you know, wh where's the best Chinese restaurant? And today, you know, I'm probably going to take a Google and a Yelp and take a look at that. So I, I think that we're going to, you know, see that uh, advisors should recognize that that's what's going on and should uh, have a digital footprint that also reflects them and have enough information about them online. Uh, they're less likely to pick up the phone and call them as, you know, a boomer might be. And in the, the last uh, round of research that we did, uh, I noticed that, just like you said, uh, younger clients were actually referring more often. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And yet their overall satisfaction was slightly lower. And and in fact, I didn't know whether to do, interpret that as they are actually less satisfied or if just as a generation, they tend to rate things slightly lower, which we see across different countries and whatnot. Um, or, or perhaps just they have different standards that are, are harder to meet. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think all of that's true. I think they do... Um rate people differently because they have different standards. I mean, uh, if you think about it, you know, to a boomer, maybe uh, showing up on time and dressed professionally uh, could be important attributes where that could be, you know, meaningless, right, to a millennial. So they're, they're not going to be looking at those particular aspects. Uh, so I think that they uh, look at different things. I think they probably rate harder because particularly in the money area, um, they know what they know, but they probably know what they don't know. Uh, so they might be more sensitive to that. Uh, but I think they also are more refer, more likely to be refers because it's a more of a community activity and they share what they know with their friends. I think that's a behavior to also um, be uh, aware of. And that can that can actually cut both ways, right? So if you make a mistake or do something wrong, you know that that uh, will also be committed. Right. So what do you say? I mean, for as long as I can remember, we've dealt with the uh, issue where an advisor might look at their existing bo book of business today and say, look, 90% of my clients are, are almost retired, uh, wealthy individuals. Uh, I know they have kids. I know that millennials are different, but but frankly, I don't want to think about that too too hard. Uh, are you seeing a shift in that? Um, I mean, you're talking about high net worth millennials at, at the same time, are you not? I mean, it's not as if these aren't good prospects, but there's always been some pushback that that we've seen. So I think that's really uh, you know that's a great question because it really comes down to mindset. And I think that the more um, uh, open-minded advisors know that all of these things can't be generalized, just to go back to the point that I made, you know, when we opened the podcast. Um, you know, certainly some millennials uh, are high net worth, some millennials are low net worth, right? Um, but I think that uh, understanding who your targets are that, for example, maybe entrepreneurs are a target for you, and that a group can be made up of millennials, women, um, boomers, right? That is a whole a host of different types of um, people, but yet your expertise as an advisor in helping perhaps manage the sale of a business uh, is really what comes into play, uh, Having managing a sudden wealth event. Uh, those are the skills that come into play more than actually targeting the subgroups, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, re so related to that, April, the, um, uh, you talked about the advisor who works with lots of high net worth investors who are maybe bo maybe boomers, and, and talking about the the millennial high net worth folks. And one of the questions that I hear a lot from advisors is, how, how do we connect with that next generation? So, if if you if you were talking with an advisor who dealt with high net worth boomers, you know what recommendations would you give her to connect with the next generation down from from their clients? 
So there are a couple of things. I think that, uh, you know, the last statistics I read were, you know, pretty um, dismal. Something like 98% of wealth inheritors change advisors. So within high net worth, there's really a couple different um, types of high net worth, which is the inheritors versus the creators. So I think with inheritors, um, it can be difficult. I know that, you know, my own kids, I don't know about you guys, but my own kids don't necessarily want to follow my bend on anything I do, right? They want to make their own choices. <laughs> the You feel the same, right? Uh, Mine's nine. So if he wants to eat, he too, pretty yeah. much has to do what I say. But that's, that's <laughs> different. <laughs> right. He's, he's going to be a self-serve soon. I'll yeah, that. <laughs> he's your that's self-serve right. client. Right. But um, I think if we, you know, you don't have to think too hard about that to know that that's true. So the, so right there is um, an important point for advisors to understand. On the flip side of that, if 98% or some, you know, out of proportion number of people are not going to be keeping their parents' advisor. That creates a huge opportunity for advisors to just become visible in the market with their skill set in serving high net worth, with uh, a look and feel of their website and their marketing materials, with events that speak to passion and social causes, with things that all we know appeal to millennials or like-minded sort of clients, right? Rather than segmenting them into, uh, you know, a particular bucket. But I think doing all of those things will attract the right sorts of clients. And I think advisors spend, uh, could spend too much time. And again, I'm generalizing a little bit here, trying to hold on to clients that might be impossible for them to really keep. Do you think just as we're sort of getting close to wrapping up, is there is there one place for an advisor to start thinking differently about how they're marketing or perhaps even just one question they could ask themselves to, uh, to move them in that direction? Um, so I think they could, uh, you know, really ask others. I find a lot of advisors will only think about things from their own standpoint. They'll take a look at their website and think that, you know, it looks good or it still looks good right? Uh, and people should be refreshing their marketing materials and rethinking about their positioning uh, minimally every two years because things change quickly and people get tired of that. So I think it's important to get an outside opinion. I think it's important to have revenue generating activities and that involves uh, creating a budget for things like marketing, which I know, you know, some advisors are reluctant to think about or to spend, but um, you know, your brand and the way your public facing um, persona looks are going to be the most important things that will be either a turn on or a turn off to your future clients. Well, not sure. yeah, that's I'm not sure I exactly answered that question, no, but no, I think that's that's perfect because sometimes knowing where to start uh, is is half the battle here. But um, so that's a to me that's just a really great specific action that somebody could take, right? Just reach out to somebody that you trust, whether it's a colleague or a consultant or or you know your spouse or somebody who mm-hmm. has an honest opinion. So appreciate that. But thank you so much. Um, hey, just if if advisors are looking for more information on you or your company, where can they find you? Uh, so they can find me at www.therudengroup.com. They can find me at on Twitter at the Rudin Group um, and some of my other social properties. And um, 
that's probably the best way to reach me. Perfect. And that's Rudin, R-U-D-I-N. Yes, thank you. It's R-U-D-I-N. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks, April. Thank you. And I hope it's helpful for some advisors and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Take care. Hey folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.